we are privileged to have joining us coach Matt Woodley, longtime high school, college, and professional basketball coach and current special assistant to coach Steve Forbes at Wake Forest. Coach, great to have you on. Uh, it's good to be on, Coach. Appreciate you having me on during this time. For those who might be wondering, I just said special assistant. What what all does that entail? I know that it entails different things for different people. Is it basically uh, they keep it general to make you do everything? Other duties assigned by the head coach. Yeah, that's, that's the phrase. That's it. That's, yeah, that's just it. what I, everyone's always like, what do you do? I'm like, whatever <laughs> the head coach wants you to do. <laughs> that's great. That's great. Okay, so we were talking beforehand, like Coach Forbes, Steve Forbes, Tony Bennett, Kermit Davis, Kevin Stallings, even some of the, the professional guys. I'm curious to know, like you've had the chance to work for some just some awesome coaches. Maybe give me, and the list is super long, but if something like pops right. out to you, a big takeaway from each of those guys. Well, let's just start coach Forbes, um, just passion, um, getting guys to play hard. Um, coach Stallings, very detail oriented on the offensive end. Um, detailed. I took a lot of really quality things from him. Um, Darren DeVries, who I worked for at Creighton, who's on the verge of becoming a superstar in this profession. Um, freedom of play guys enjoyed playing for him. Coach Bennett, more than anything, I took from him is his conviction to what he thinks wins basketball games. Kermit Davis, detail-oriented, like a CEO, Nick Saban type is the best way I would, like has his hands on all parts of the program. Um, very detailed, very organized. You better be on top of your stuff because he's done every job in a profession, to be honest with you. So those are just kind of some of the things, you know, when I was in the pro game, I had the fortune that I worked for Coach Fisdale with the Memphis Grizzlies. He brought, he came from the Miami Heat and just, you know, I don't love this word. I don't know what other word to use. It'd be like the Miami Heat culture, um, just how they go about their approach to work every day and what it takes to be a first-class organization. Um, Dave Yeager, who I worked for for a couple of years with the Memphis Grizzlies, um, the best X and O basketball coach I've ever been around. Just incredible. There's not even a close second, to be honest. That's not a knock on the guys that I've worked for. That's just more of what I think of Dave. And and Coach Yeager um, actually was just texting with him today about some stuff. But he is, you know, he's a longtime head coach in the minor leagues. He carved out his own way in this profession. And he's coached at every backward city, town in minor league basketball. And he worked his way up to an NBA head coach. And you know, it was a couple wins away from the Western Conference Finals one year. So um, just had the good fortune to work for a lot of quality people. I know a lot of younger coaches. So, you know, back when you were coaching early on, did you find yourself trying to emulate somebody or were you able to find that like, I am who I am and I took bits of pieces and that kind of helped make me who I am? I think more than anything, uh, my dad is probably the biggest influence on me. Mm -hmm. You know, he's 40 years of a college in high school coach. So I kind of grew up in a coaching background, but I think more than anything, my path was a little different because I worked for coach Bennett and um, coach Davis before I became a head coach. And then I was a head coach at the high school and then college level. And then I went and worked for a couple guys in the pro game and then became a pro head coach. And so it wasn't like I had all these guys and then became a head coach. So it's kind of a, a different path, but to answer your question and for young guys, I think like two things I would always say is number one, you have to be yourself because that's the only way you can be authentic. And I think, especially with players today, 
and it's changed even the last five, 10 years, but certainly since I played in college and when I coached, it, it's changed, you know, so you have to be authentic. I think when you're, when you're authentic of who you are, um, I think it just, it comes across better to the players and I think you'll get more buy-in, but to answer your question, like, yeah, like there's things that I took from all of those guys. Um, but at the end of the day, it was, you know, who you kind of were and who you kind of are is what you really need to become when you become a head coach, when you get in front of your team, because you can only be somebody else for a short period of time. And I've always said, like, I coached high school basketball and those kids go home and complain to their parents. And so then you got to hear from parents. When you coach in college, those guys are – you know, they'll listen to you, but then they go home to their dorm room and they're with all their buddies on the team. They complain to each other. Mm-hmm. When you go to the pros and you say some things that probably you shouldn't say or you're not, they're not well thought out, those pro guys just tell you right to your face in front of the whole team. So to answer your question, all these kids are all perceptive. I've coached kids from 14 years old on a freshman on my varsity team to – Damian Wilkins, who is a, is a year younger than me, um, when I was in the when I was in the D League, and but they're all thinking the same thing. They're all perceptive. They're all on social media. They all have friends in the in, you know playing other places because the you know everybody's connected you know anymore. And so to answer your question, like you have to be yourself. And the one thing that I'd always tell young coaches, and I didn't do this when I was a young coach. It was a mistake that I made. I think a lot of coaches may make it is. If you don't know the answer, you don't know the answer. And it's okay to say, listen, I don't know, but I'll find out. And I Mm -hmm. think so many young coaches want to have all the answers when a player or even their boss asks them, hey, have you called this kid this week? No, I haven't. You know, that's 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 okay. It's not the best answer, but it's, it's the truthful answer. And then I think the second biggest takeaway of kind of with working is, be where your feet are. That was always the thing my dad told me. Like, if you do a good job of where you're at, someone will take notice. I, I've always really disliked the coaches that um, are always trying to get the next job instead of doing well at the job that they have. Um, and I understand there's a certain level of networking that needs to take place in our profession to climb the ladder. But I've always thought, like, knowledge, hardworking, loyal, and things like that. You know, and I always took I always took like when I was on the road of an assistant coach, maybe talking about their current head coach in probably not a positive manner. I always took note of that and always just never thought that was probably the best thing to do. We've had a lot of offense on this show recently, and so I wanted to talk a little bit of defense today. And you've mentioned some of the guys, you know, Coach Bennett you've worked for and some of the others as well, even like Coach Yeager, I know defensively really respected. But let me talk just kind of your philosophy, but then also some specifics to help coaches because uh, I, I get the sense sometimes that some coaches will say, well, we just need to work hard on the defensive end. And if we're not very good, then we need to just work, work harder. I think some of those schemes that we're now like pack line, everybody's familiar with, right. whether it's, you know, the Texas techno middle defense, whoever it is, whatever it is. Sure. Okay? Syracuse zone, whatever. Yeah. Like whatever it is. Okay. Right. Right. All right. So now I want to ask you scheme versus player skill. What truly makes defense effective, especially at the college and higher high school levels? 
Okay, I think like that's a that's a it's a, it's a great question. Okay, I think there's a lot of layers to that. I think like more than anything, I think when um, you have to coach defense like you'd coach offense, and I and what I mean by that is is I think coaches that always say I'm just going to get my guys to play hard defensively. And I think there's some merit to that. Like, I mean, like that's our, that's our game. Like guys that play hard and do well. I, I think that's really important. I think number two, when coaches always talk about it, it doesn't matter what we run. If we have good enough players, it's not true. It's not true. Like it's, it's not true. Like you look at like football teams, let's just talk offense real quick in football. Like a quarterback that is in a good scheme and system for him allows him to play well. And I think the same is the fact in, in defense, whether it's high school, college, or professional basketball, you have to be put in a scheme that you can look well playing, and it has to be connected with all five guys. So to answer your question, and we can talk analytics as well with this, is like everybody's into this thing right now of layups, free throws, and then three-pointers in that order, correct? Like those are the highest three shots, whatever. Well, I know that, you know that, everybody listening know that. Well, like, how do we take that away? Like, there's one thing to know what's a good shot, what's a shot. Well, we want to force tough twos. Well, well, how do we do that, okay? So I think the first thing with what makes a really good defense is, number one, the emphasis in your practice of playing one-on-one. I think any good defense, no matter what it is, is the ability to stay, and as simple as it sounds, it started with my high school team, to my college team, to the professional team that I was the head coach. I've been a head coach at all three levels, okay? And the true component of any good team, and even if you look at Tony's teams at Virginia, everybody talks about pack line and this and that, and they're tremendous defensively, but the ability to guard the ball one-on-one and the ability to do that um, without fouling. You know, I Mm -hmm. look at some of these teams, and I don't want to name names, but these teams that, you know, foul all the time, but everybody thinks they're, well, they're fouling. You're, you're giving them the second best shot in the game, you know, just by not doing anything. And I, you know, I watched a lot of Loyola, you know, being in the league for two previous years until this year. And I think they're as good as anybody in the country at guarding the ball. So I, I would encourage teams, you know, and, and they do it with not the best athletes. So I always try to look at like the teams that, that they don't have the best job in their particular league whether it be high school, college, pros. Um, I'm studying the New York Knicks right now. I'm, I've always been a Tom Thibodeau fan. I, I've I made a huge fan. He kind of had an obscure path, very similar coach division to, and kind of worked his way up. And guys like him and Steve Clifford, Jeff Van Gundy, Stan Van Gundy, they all kind of come from that Pat Riley tree of the New York Knicks where defense, toughness, and things like that. But along with that, I think the ability to – our game is such a put the ball on the floor, drive and kick type of game. So I think number one, guarding the basketball. Number two, I think defense is a lot like offense. And I always call it appropriate help, proper help, whatever the term may be, whether you're a pack line team, no middle team, whether you want to force the ball down. But how are you teaching the help one pass away or two passes away if you're going to pull people over? I've always been under the impression that In this order, number one, I want to take layups in the paint away. I think the New York Knicks are as good as anybody. They're leading the NBA right now in um, field goal percentage at the rim. I think the Milwaukee Bucks, you know, over the last couple years have been the best at doing that. And they give up a lot of threes. And I think what we teach right now defensively is 
in reverse order, if that makes sense. I think everybody is so scared of this three-point line, and rightfully so because everybody's shooting it, and they say that the, you can't really affect percentages. You can affect three-point attempts. I don't necessarily agree, that, agree with that. But I think, like, the big thing is, is number one, guarding the ball. Number two, you're helped one pass away, whether you're in the gap or however that may be. And teaching that and coaching that and emphasizing is the guy beat. Do I need the help? Can I get back out to my guy? And as simple as that sounds, I think, like, that's the emphasis that needs to take place um, when you're talking about those things. But for myself and what I believe in is I'm going to take away the rim and the paint first. We're going to do it without fouling. And then we're going to close out really hard to try and affect and, and contest a three-point shot. I think by doing that, you then can kind of work whatever you, you your defensive philosophy is with that, whether what you want to do in pick and roll. And I think there's really only two kinds of pick and roll defenses, in my opinion, is either you're going to ice or down the ball screen or you're going to show or blitz or hedge, you know, and force the, the ball handler into the screen. So either you're going to force the ball handler away from the ball screen or face or force the ball handler into the ball screen. And I think everything else with your help, where you want to help, and we can get into detail of that, you can kind of build upon that. But I think the first question you got to answer is, number one, how am I going to guard the ball? And how am I going to emphasize that? Number two is, how is my help going to be appropriate or proper? And then number three is, how do I want to play pick and roll? And I think if you can answer those three things and be pretty convicted toward it, can, you know, towards that, I think you can have a solid defense. Yeah, let me ask you about the, the help. You know, for so long, it was on the line, up the line. And you yeah. know, as you spread as you spread your guys out, you're really just exposing the paint. And I understand right. the attempting to to create turnovers, but now, like you said, the analytics behind it protecting the paint does that just simply move people more? You don't have to play pack line. Well, we've done this with our program. Right. It's more of playing in the gaps and trying to help the guy with the basketball. Because I know a lot of coaches will say like our our guys just have a hard time guarding the basketball. And I understand that's a real. That's an actual problem. I, that, that's not just high school level. That's, that's a, everywhere. That's a college. Yeah, that's everywhere. That's everywhere. That's everywhere. That, that that's not that's not you know you know just for for certain levels. That's everywhere. That's our game. Yeah. So how do we help with that? A lot of times that will be based on where you're at on the floor. You know, like the the standard is we don't give help off the corner. Okay, so you're gonna give up a shot in the paint potentially right so yeah. like what 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 then does that look like in changing the overall philosophy so that we are giving help and not giving up those paint bigger picture here as soon as you let into the paint if you're helping late we're now teaching players to recognize that help you're so deep at that point now you're kicking right you're pitching to somebody else who's shooting a three we're killing killing ourselves on both ends yeah, that's kind of like your philosophy. It's a great question. So to answer your question, and let's work backwards here, is number one, offensively, what are we always trying to tell our guys to shoot threes? We want inside-out paint step-in threes, okay? Well, if we're telling offenses that, and every good offense, that's what you're trying to do, we don't want the ball in there. And the help off the corner, I don't believe that. The, the numbers in the pro game would suggest that, but I don't believe that in college. I, I've studied it. I, it. It doesn't equate. Teams are not shooting it in the corner any better than above the break. So I think, like, to have an overall true philosophy, I think, number one, let's just take, for example, let's say the ball is on the right wing. And we are guarding at the top of the key and the right corner. Let's just use three players to start with. So if I'm on the ball, if I'm guarding the basketball on the, 
on the wing. Like my job is no straight line drives. Like it doesn't matter if we're not, you know, pack line, no baseline, you know, Texas Tech, whatever, no middle. Like to me, those things are great and they make sense. But like we just don't want to get beat in a straight line. Like you have to guard the basketball knowing that you're probably going to get a pick and roll coming at some point. Okay. Number two, I always talk about the three guys that are involved. There's always a guy on the ball. There's always a guy to your left or to your right. I always call that your first line of defense. And we don't want to help with our second line. So the two other players on the floor that are behind those two guys in the gap, so to speak. So if we're talking in the right corner and at the top of the key and we're guarding on the right wing, I always want our guys to be one step off the ball and a half a step closer to the ball than their man. And I want to create an illusion of a crowded floor. So they don't even want to dribble the ball because they feel like they're dribbling into traffic. And then from there, we're going to read how that ball is being driven. If it's being dribbled at me, I can get out to my guy. If it's being dribbled underneath of me, then it's, there's, you know, we might get the ball out of the paint. We can go in there and rake at the ball, what we'd call rake at the ball. And then we always talk about we don't want any strikes being thrown out of penetration. We want balls. We want the ball to go to the, the receiver over his hand or just like you're a pitcher and a catcher. So we always talk about don't let the offensive team throw strikes. We want them to throw balls. So your first line of help is your help. Like that, we don't ever want to help with our second line of help. And, you know, from just basic terms like that, we don't want the ball to be inside, get dribbled underneath of us, and then kicked out for a three. The second thing is we don't want to make two movements, okay? That's why we're one step off the ball and a half a step closer to the, to, to the, the ball instead of your man because we want to create the illusion of, and I always tell our guys, like, your body is here, your mind is on the guy that you're guarding. We only want to make one movement. We can make one movement and close out to anybody if practice and emphasize enough. We don't want to help and recover. I think that's where these teams get into trouble. Hmm. To go back to your question earlier about one, you know, up the line, on the line, I think anytime you spread your defense or stretch your defense, number one, more hand check fouls on the ball because there's not enough help. So now you're you're allowing fouls. That foul count, especially in college because we play halves. So these mm -hmm. fouls just keep mounting up. We don't get them reset yeah. at the quarter, which is a whole nother issue with college <laughs> basketball, how ancient we are with our rules. And then number two is now the ball is going to be into the heart of your defense, into that restricted area, which is the highest shot of the game. So just by stretching your defense out and trying to force turnovers, you're allowing the two best, the two highest shots to just organically happen. Then I think the other thing, too, is when you're talking defense is your defense should be designed to beat the best team in your league to beat the team that you have to get to beat to go to the state tournament or to get to the NCAA tournament or to win a playoff game in the in, in, in the pros, the good teams that you're trying to beat, that pressure doesn't bother them because they're going to have more than one guy to handle the basketball and to break down your defense. And you see it happen all the time in college basketball. Everybody wants to talk about upsets and things like that. Like There's no upsets in college basketball because it's a neutral floor game. The refs can't cheat. And the other team has the other teams have good good players. They have good ball handlers. That's why they're there. And when those three things happen, and you want to start spreading out and stretching and things like that, nothing good comes upon it. And then you're giving up everything because then you're overreacting. Now you're fouling. They're at the rim. And I think that in itself is the biggest problem right now. When I watch college 
in high school basketball, not in the pros, because the pros determine going into the game, this is how what we're going to live with. This is what the numbers tell us. This is what our eyes tell us when we're studying an opponent. What happens in college is one time the guy will get beat on a pick and roll. We got to switch our pick and roll coverage. You gave up a three or this. And now all of a sudden they're at your rim. They're in the penalty. They're in the slash bonus. They're making threes. And now you're just all over the place. And the pros are like, hey, there's going to be 100 possessions in this game. We're probably going to give up between 198 and 105 points. I'm going to decide how I'm going to give up 105. You know what I mean? And I think college and high school were all over the place and the ability to play multiple zones and defenses. And there's just, I don't think there's enough time to do those things to be really good at anything. And the overhelping too at the college level just, it kills oh, me. it's an epidemic. It oh, kills it's just, me. It's just, yeah. yeah. And, and it comes, and that's why I talk about the second line of help. The second line of help is usually big people, you know, your power forwards or your centers. They just organically help. So, yeah. like, I don't want to put them in a situation where they have to help. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. I, I really want those guys. And, you know, our game turned out to so much four out, one in, five out perimeter players. But still, those second line of defense helpers, we don't want those guys helping. Because then you turn into long closeouts. Then, the, then like I said, then they get you in the blender. And once yeah. the team gets you in the, the, in the blender in the half court, it's, <laughs> oh, I hope yeah. they miss. I hope yeah. they miss. And you're not <laughs> dictating anything. Support for a quick timeout podcast is brought to you by our friends at Dr. Dish Basketball. College and professional teams from around the country rely on Dr. Dish shooting machines to help improve their players' development. Whether it's in the gym or at home in your driveway, Dr. Dish will improve your basketball workouts. To find out more about how Dr. Dish can help your program, visit drdishbasketball.com. The best basketball coaches are relying on data more than ever. That's why coaches love Huddle Assist. With Assist, you get full game breakdowns, including complete team and player stats, in less than 24 hours. Your stats are ready when you need them. And Assist is more than just the box score. Use interactive reports like shot charts and advanced stats like lineup data, VPS, and of course, effective field goal percentage to coach smarter. Plus, Assist brings your stats to life. Every stat is marked on the video at the moment it happened. See every shot, turnover, rebound, and much more with just a few clicks. Want to see how Huddle Assist is elevating basketball? Visit huddle.com slash assist. That's huddle.com slash assist to learn more. All right, you brought it up. I know you've said it before. I say it all the time, but I'm just a nobody. So I'm going to have somebody smarter than I am who's coaching at a higher level than I am. Please teach us the correct way to close out to a three-point shooter. Okay, so I think it, it encompasses a couple of things. I think number one, and I've seen teams do this, I think when you're one pass away or you're two passes away or whatever, I think there's different kinds of closeouts. All right, there's short closeouts and long closeouts. So let's just talk about short closeouts. Let's take back to our example earlier. Ball's on the right wing. We're guarding the guy at the top of the key. The guy dribbles left towards the nail. We're, we're at the nail. We have a nail presence. That's in our gap. We all don't want to make one movement. We're going to sprint to our stance with our inside hand, which is the hand closest to the ball, which would I would teach it as your deflection hand. or I call it a stick hand. Terminology is whatever sticks with you. It doesn't matter. It's your inside hand. That's the hand we're going to close out with. And I always say stick your face. So we're going to sprint to our stance. Our hand's going to be extended, and we're going to kind of, like we're going to go like if you have a little brother, you're going to like go 
Palma's face. That to me is the proper distance where I can absorb a dribble. I can contest a shot. I, and that's how I feel you should close out one pass away. If it's a long closeout and a skip, first off, I'm going to scream at the guy who's guarding the basketball because I always say you have to have appropriate ball pressure. So those long closeouts usually are non-dribble, non-penetration ones. So like the ball's on the right wing, let's take our example, we're guarding the guy in the left corner. Now, depending on your defensive scheme, you may want him underneath the rim as the low man. Maybe he's straddling the lane line, whatever your terminology may be wherever you want your weak side help. But I always felt like if you are strong on the strong side and that first line of help, I don't think you have to over-exaggerate your help from the weak side, which I call the other two players, which is the second line of help. But that's to whatever your terminology and whatever you feel comfortable doing. Um, Because if you're going to be kind of a gap-oriented or pack-oriented team, you're probably going to allow ball reversal. And if you make a guy stand underneath the rim – and you allow quick reversals, you're automatically putting them in long closeouts really for no reason, no, no, just really unnecessary. So I always kind of wanted them to read the situation. Again, it goes back to teaching them how to play defense along with teaching them how to play offense. But if it's just a skip pass to the corner, same terminology. I want to sprint to my stance with my inside hand up. I don't believe in chopping your feet. And I don't believe in two hands. You talk to any strength coach or people like with that can, you know, I, I've studied this. I've talked to many guys in NBA college of how the body works. Mm-hmm. Sprinting to your you don't see like DBs chopping their feet on, you know, like they break down and get in and out of a break. You don't see a receiver do that. Like they're cutting in and out. Like I feel it's the same way as closing out. And it's the repetitive nature of you want it to be automated. And like that, just if you're teaching it the same way of closing out uh, to a three-point shooter, I think you can bother the shot, and I think you can absorb a dribble, and I think you can chest a guy because you're just trying to guard him for one dribble, you know. Mm-hmm. And then he's got to make another dribble. Hopefully, your help's there, and you know of those type of things. But you're just trying to guard him from one dribble, kind of rerouting him, make him spin behind the back, make him make a counter move to you. Then you can play with your chest and what I would call body between. And we always want our body between the basket and the ball handler. And that's what you're fighting for. I'm not a big fan of running a guy off the three-point line. I think teams practice the shot fake, the reload, the one dribble. I, I, I don't like that. I don't like automatically playing five on four because I'm scared of the three-point line. Um, I think that's an easy way to do it. I think it's, uh, I think it's lazy. <laughs> for a lack of a better word. I think it's a lazy way of teaching how to guard the three-point line. I'm sure there's a team or two out there that has had a lot of success doing that. Um, I just I never see it when the games matter. I never right. seen when, when the games matter in the tournament or the games that you have to win, I just never see that the, see that kind of closeout happening. I never heard this terminology before, but uh, the way that I've taught it to my guys, which isn't very good because I'm down here in the South, but I married, uh, <laughs> I married a girl from up in the north, a hockey stop. So I'm sprinting and then I'm just turning and stopping as fast as I can. And those right. that are from the south won't understand a lick about what I'm talking about here. But right. And then something interesting I've heard you talk about too before. I, this is one of those where I feel like it's, this is how we've done it for the last 100 years of basketball. So we're going to keep doing this. It's uh, containing your man with defensive slides. So yeah. essentially sliding, 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 sliding. That's not going well in the in modern basketball, is it? 
Well, it's just it's 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 what's wrong with our game. Like like you have to study games. Like if you were to tell me I had to go close out on Russell Westbrook or one of these guys, and I had to slide and slide and slide, I'm gonna see his numbers and his last name on the back of his jersey while he's laying it in. Mm-hmm. Like you have to, you can make. I always felt like you can make one slide. Yeah. And if he's dribbling it, you got to turn and run and get in front. Mm-hmm. Turn your hips, open your hips, turn and run. I, you know, run, glide, run, you know, like for a lack of Jerry Tarkanian, like it's sprint to your stance, absorb the first dribble. If he keeps going, you're beat. You got to turn to run and get body between. You can't keep sliding. I don't understand that. And then these guys that eat the slides and don't bring your heels together. Have you ever tried? Like, that doesn't even make sense. Like, and we were all taught that growing up. It's just, it's such an antiquated way of looking at things. And it's kind of like, I always say it's the most dangerous phrase in our language is this is, it's done. It's just, that's how we've always done it. Well, and then teams that win, I think that's why they've won because Mm. of that. And that's the scarier part. Like Mm. these guys that have been so successful for so long, but it's, are you winning because of it or in spite of it? You know, and that, that's always my challenge. And I think all of us that are learners and have that growth mindset of like, go watch the NBA at night. Like I watch how they close out, you know, go to Synergy. If you have that availability held YouTube, you can get any kind of film you want nowadays and watch how people are closing out. Watch how people are guarding the ball. Watch the successful ones. I coached a really good player in college named Clay Thompson. He slides as good as anybody can. And I used to talk to him a lot about this. I don't talk to him much anymore. Um, but when he was first in the league, we would always talk about different things and turning and running and getting your body between and trying to be parallel, you know, between your guy in the basket and things like that. And, like, you can't do that just by slide, 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 slide. It's a great drill. It's neat. It looks cool on a videotape, but it's just – it's wasted motion. It's just, it's not how the game's played. Watch any game, and I'm not trying to sound arrogant or anything, but it's just not how you guard the basketball. I've seen even teams that I know practice the short choppy and even the two hands, and the right. game starts, and I see sprint to stop, and right. I see one hand closeouts. Yep. So it's it's almost like we're fighting against what the body naturally does for the sake right. of this is how we've already always done it. Uh, let me ask you one more thing with the closeouts and we've tracked this. I'm just wondering if you've ever done this or seen anything with this. We started tracking several years ago because we were seeing the closeouts and the short choppies. And one of the reasons why I switched away from that, the closeout distance and the correlation between shot percentages. And we found that four plus feet, it's pretty much a made basket at the college level, at least two to four feet. It dropped by about 16 to 20%. And then it's had almost the same 16 to 20% again when we were at zero to two feet. Have you seen anything like, I mean, have you guys tracked anything like that before or seen anything like that? I've never tracked it. Um, that's great. That's good. Like I, I'm going to Just now. close out. I mean, it's very hard no. because I don't have a, I don't have a tape measure when I'm sitting over there on the sidelines, but I mean, you can judge no, is that guy can... zero, two, right. four, whatever. Well, that was kind of goes back to like when I worked for Coach Bennett, you know, years ago of closing out into like airspace. And that's kind of like where bothering shots with your stick hand. I always felt like that's the appropriate distance, whatever Mm -hmm. the length of your arm is. Um, I always felt like if you can get to sticking his, I call it stick his face on the closeout on the catch. If you can stick his face, 
I always thought like we had a lot of success of defending the three and guarding that first dribble. Cause that's, mm-hmm. that to me is the most important thing. Cause that first one is quick to get down. You know, if that guy's going to, you know, drive that close out or he's going to raise up and shoot and then you can go and contest. But I always felt like if you could stick his face when he caught the basketball, we were in pretty good shape. So to answer your question, have I been to as detailed as you have? No, but I would agree with what you're saying because that's what the data shows. And I'm, mm-hmm. it's good to know, to be honest. Yeah. So, yeah. so let's go ahead and talk a little bit about data and, and advanced stats. Have they significantly changed something in particular? I'm sure they have, but like what, what comes to your mind? Is it the ball screen coverage or is it something else where because you've and I think it goes back to that, like we've always done it. I think coaches have for years, they know data, they observe, we're not stupid. But now that you have solid numbers behind it, and maybe it's something that you thought was one way and the numbers have proved otherwise. And so that changed how you do something. Is there anything, either something we've already mentioned or something else in particular that now that you have the data, we do this on the defensive side? Yeah, I think it's a good question. I think like what the data tells us is don't foul, you know, limit shots at the rim and try and bother three-point shooting, right, in that order. So, like, okay, how can we go about doing that? I think we all went through as coaches when this three-point shot in the last decade has overpowered our game. We all went in reverse order. Like, where there was a period of time where I was scared to death of the three, and what had happened was – I was so worried about the three that we, we fouled more. Um, we gave up probably more shots at the rim. And then I was fortunate to have a couple players that could block a lot of shots. So I thought like what we were doing was the right way, but it all came back to the core fundamentals of what the numbers would tell you is that kind of like what Tony is doing for an example, um, like the, everybody, everybody thought pressure defense was the way to defend the three. You know, we went through that stage of nobody's leaving shooters. We're denying. We're going to stand next to the guy. We're not going to make guys make multiple efforts. And it was kind of, I, I think, I think everything kind of comes full circle. You know what I mean? And I think kind of like how we were playing without really knowing beforehand of defending the three kind of came back to, okay, I went and worked for Coach Bennett. I coached my own high school team. I got into coach my own college team. I got into the pros. I worked for all these good people. And I had all these, saw these great ideas of doing all these things, but it kind of came back to the emphasis on what you are willing to give up and what you're willing to take away. I was fine with, and it was hard because there was a lot of nights where I had the best players. And if I would have got out and pressured them and did things, I probably could have turned them over. We would have won by 40 points, eight or nine or 11. And I think that that's the hardest thing for coaches is to sit back and allow that ball to be reversed. Teams can run their stuff. I said, they can whip it around the infield, run all their plays their fancy stuff that they spend all their time on in practice. And I wasn't affecting that. But what happens in the game is it's going to boil down to the ball being dribbled into the heart of your defense, a pick and roll, them exploiting your pick and roll. We're going to put two on the ball. That ball is going to get thrown out. Now we're going to be at a disadvantage. How are we going to play? And I think at the end of the day, for me personally, what the numbers have proven to me is that this game is still one in the paint. It's not one at the three-point line. And I don't care. And I think that goes both terms, both offensively and defensively. 
That doesn't mean we throw the ball in the post every single time and, and shoot turnaround jump shots in the post. That's not what I mean. The, the game's won by cutting into the post. You're seeing all this off-ball cutting now. You're seeing dribble penetration. You're seeing guards posting up, Villanova passing out for threes. You're seeing a lot of offense. So to answer your question, the numbers have proven to me that this game is still one in the paint, both offensively and defensive. If you can dominate that area of the floor – I think you're going to win a lot of games. Uh, this is the last thing that I want to talk about in relationship a little bit to that, what you just said. Um, this year's tournament, we saw things like, you know, ghost screens. You're seeing more gap creation to do what you were talking about, which is exploiting the second line and creating more space and whatnot. That's on the offensive side. Is there something that you feel like on the defensive side that we're going to see either more teams try to do or more teams do in the near future? To right. Because I feel like a, a lot of times, you know, for, for us as coaches, it's always like, what can, what's the next thing or what's the thing that can exploit creating the advantages or, you know, protecting the paint or whatever it is. It could even be, I don't know how you feel about zones or more teams going to play zone or like, what, what do you feel like teams are going to do kind of like that next wave? I think, um, I think Baylor kind of did it defensively. I think like, to keep the ball maybe on one side of the floor may become more vogue. I'm surprised really that teams don't do that, by the way. We talk right. so much other... about the ball crossing over the midline and how much percentages right. go up, and then I see teams right. come out right. and just let the ball cross the midline over and over and over. Right. So I think that's a great question. I think, number one, you know, we talk about offense playing through the midline. We always want to play through the midline, whether it's in pick and roll, driving kick game, and – we could do a whole other podcast on just offensive spacing, cutting. But I think, number one, keeping the ball on one side of the floor, I think, can alleviate a lot of those things. But here's the catchy part. Everybody's trying to switch. Okay? So everybody's trying to switch. That's a convenient way. Like, let's just switch. I hate it. I think mm-hmm. it's unaccountable. If that's not even a word. My wife would probably kill me. <laughs> but um, I don't think there's any accountability to switching. I don't think teams switch properly. I think like the Celtics do as good a job as anybody would I call pounce the switch. But when you become a switching team and pick and roll one through four, then it's really hard to keep the ball on one side of the floor. I think the teams like I watch the Knicks play a lot. I've studied them. I've literally watched like their last 35 games, all the defensive possessions. Um, and even when Thibodeau was in Chicago when he had it going with Derrick Rose before that Rose injury is they do such a good job of keeping the ball on the floor on one side of the floor. And they don't care if it's a pick and pop four, they're going to down the thing. They're going to ice the thing. And I think like even as Texas tech, as good as they are, there's so much switching going on that it automatically, you just let the ball go to the middle of the floor because it's really hard to switch in the ice, which I think you can do. I just don't think it's a very convenient switch when you're trying to, I think kind of make like a concerted effort to have a conviction of what they want to do defensively. I don't think you're going to see anything different defensively until you see a team come out here. And again, like I always say it comes full circle. Like I still think there's a way to play a power forward and a center and play pick and roll coverage. I really believe that. And everybody's scared to death of a pick and pop four and a pick and pop. I'm scared to death of a guy getting switched onto a five, Jalen Suggs, and driving right to the heart of the defense and then picking one of four guys to throw out a step in three. Again, it goes back to like the college way or the high school way of thinking of, well, gosh, this this guy can pick and pop five. So what? He's not 
programmed to do that. And if you're going to, those guys are like one in a league, like one, there's maybe one guy like that in the league. And what happens if there's a four man setting aside naked, empty side pick and roll? We have to switch that. Well, once you decide to do that, you're now allowing the best ball handler to get on one of your secondary defenders and be able to play through the midline. So I think until we have somebody that's convicted of keeping the ball and be a true, you know, no middle team where they're going to ice with the four and the five, I don't think you're going to see much difference because of all the switching. I think if you look at like a Virginia or, you know, somebody like that, like they don't switch. Like they're very comfortable with that ball being played through the midline because it never gets to the paint and through the midline. And then like these ghost screens or what I call finger cuts where they pass and cut underneath to create an extra gap. <laughs> I think you can see the good teams, what I would call. So like, uh, you know, Tony, if you and I are in a two guard front and I'm on the right wing, I'm on the right. I'm, I'm guarding a guy on the right. You're guarding a guy on the left. Right. And I pass it to the guy that you're guarding and he cuts underneath and this guy takes off to create that double gap. I think it's of a most important to see that guy through so if he takes off dribbling, I'm almost going to double that ball, okay? Because if they throw back, you're going to have somebody stunting behind them. You can't have a lopsided floor. If it's a double mm-hmm. gap, that means there's only going to be one guy coming to the strong side, if I'm making any sense at all. So you're going to always have help behind. But so many times these guys just chase that guy through and ends up being like a double screen, <laughs> and now he's downhill like a, like a blur cut, you know, <laughs> fingers cut, blurs cut. And I'm like, see that guy through, like see him through, almost double it. And it, it can be a late switch or it's not a true veer, but it can be like a late switch where I can then keep my integrity of that first line of help. And that's still yeah. part of first line help of those fingers cuts or blur cuts if I'm making any sense at all. Yeah, it, for sure. And then it's, in terms of like the ghost screens, um, I always told our guys, like play what's called. You know, like if he's coming up and you think he's setting a screen, play the coverage, you know, whatever it may be, whether you're showing or leaking or switching or whatever, play the coverage, you know, play the coverage. The next thing that I think is going to be really important, and I think it's kind of like some Patriots way of doing it, is if I'm guarding the basketball and we know we're getting a lot of ghost screens late and I'm guarding the basketball and the guys come in the ghost because they always get close, I'm going to run into the guy ghost screen and then I'm going to get a foul. And I'm going to teach that because Mm -hmm. this guy's coming close all the time and they're ducking out of there. I'm just going to back up and kind of run into them because it always happens outside of the scoring area. Yeah. So even if I back up, that's okay. I'm going to run into them and I'm going to get a foul call. It's kind of like the dribble handoffs. I'm just going to run into the guy. And, 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 and to be honest, because all the rules right now are being for the offensive benefit, none of these rules are getting changed ever until you and I are six feet under, um, they're not getting changed because everybody wants offense. Mm -hmm. So I think the biggest thing is like, there's gotta be some gamesmanship of, because the rules aren't changing they're not allowing us to put hands on guys. We can't hit cutters anymore. We can't tag with forearms. You know, we can't play with our chest. We can't walk up underneath guys. I mean, you can certain situations. So there has to be a way of kind of, you know, pushing that envelope defensively. And I think those are two things that I would definitely do. These guys that are cutting and running underneath of me, I'm going to run into them and I'm going to get foul calls. That's coach Matt Woodley of Wake Forest, Demon Deacons. Coach, really appreciate you coming on the show.
Oh, great. Thanks, buddy. Appreciate you.